Hello, and welcome to another episode of Experto Crede, the Minnesota Law Review podcast. I am your host, Karthik Rahman, the lead online editor for Volume 104. Our podcast today will feature a panel from the Law Review Symposium earlier this academic year. This panel consists of Professors Jessica Eaglin and Kevin Wrights. Jessica Eaglin is an Associate Professor of Law at Indiana University Maurer School of Law. She writes about sentencing reforms adopted in response to the economic pressures of mass incarceration to eliminate how they will impact underlying socio-political transformations that sustain the socio-historical phenomenon. Her recent work focuses on the proliferation of technical reforms, in particular actuarial risk assessment tools, and the obscured perils they represent for punishment and society. Kevin Wrights is a professor of criminal procedure at the University of Minnesota Law School. He served as a reporter for the American Law Institute's project to rewrite the sentencing and corrections provisions of the Model Penal Code, which won final approval in 2017. He has published extensively on sentencing law, policy, and procedure, and on criminal justice policy in the U.S. and other countries. Professors Eaglin and Wrights discuss the costs and benefits of the growing use of actuarial risk assessment as tools in criminal sentencing. So without further ado, here are Professors Eaglin and Wrights. Thanks for coming back after lunch. I know you didn't have very long to go anywhere. Um, I'm Kelly Mitchell. I'm Executive Director of the Robina Institute of Criminal Law and Criminal Justice, and I have the distinct pleasure of introducing our next panel, which will talk a little bit about risk and a little bit about parole release. Um, our first speaker is going to be Jessica England, and she is an Associate Professor of Law at the Maurer School of Law at Indiana University Bloomington. She, uh, prior to joining the law school, she served as counsel in the Justice Program at the Brennan Center for Justice at New York University School of Law. She clerked for Damon, Honor, the Honorable Damon uh, J. Keith of the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. And she's also been a litigation associate at Simpson, Thatcher, and Bartlett in New York City. She's an expert in criminal law, evidence, and federal sentencing law. Um, going directly after her will be Professor Kevin Wrights, our own Professor Kevin Wrights. He's the James Annenberg Levy Land Grant Professor of Criminal Procedure here at the University of Minnesota. He most recently has served as a reporter uh, for the American Law Institute's Model Penal Code revision to the sentencing uh, section, uh, a huge undertaking of a great project. Um, and he's also served as our co-director of the Robina Institute of uh, Criminal Law and Criminal Justice, and that's uh, the, the area where I've gotten to work with him the most. He's um, working with the Institute on, uh, on projects relating to prison release discretion. He's published extensively on sentencing, law, policy, and procedure, and on criminal justice policy in the US and other countries. So they're each going to speak um, for t about 20 minutes each. If you have questions, please go ahead and fill out those cards and send them to the sides. And we'll take questions after they've both had a chance to present. Please welcome Professor England. All right, sorry. <laughs> Hi, thank you so much um, for the opportunity to be here and for sticking through in the after lunch lull. So I'm excited for everyone that is here. Um, all right, so uh, in uh, uh, Professor Zimmering's uh, forthcoming book, he lets us in on a little secret um, that many criminal justice reformers are aware of, which is uh, that reducing mass incarceration or efforts to reduce mass incarceration are up against two hurdles. One hurdle is to stop the increase in incarceration, but the other hurdle is to stop the threat or, or of stabilization, right? Saying that we've done enough, um, the prisons are full, uh, we've figured out enough ways to, to stop the increase that we don't need to change the criminal justice apparatus um, any longer. Um, and he's writing against that when he says, um, as in the focus of my uh, my contribution, I guess, um, is is um, he's writing against that threat of stabilization uh, when he suggests two different um, sentencing reform paths forward. Um, and the first, the one I'm going to be talking about, um, is laid out in chapter six, um, where he talks about what I would call the, the categorical alternatives um, to uh, prison sentences. Um, 
And that can be simplified into um, a um, more simplified way of saying it is he looks to drugs and jails um, as promising routes for reform. Uh, in this talk, uh, I'm going to be uh, examining what that proposal, or potentially two separate proposals, depending on how you read the, um, the chapter, uh, what that proposal uh, suggests and highlighting the tension it has, uh, or that it presents, with another very popular sentencing reform proliferating across the country, uh, which is the introduction of actuarial risk assessment tools. Um, and actuarial risk assessment tools um, are um, these tools or instruments that are designed to assess the likelihood of an individual defendant um, recidivating, engaging in um, particular criminal behavior again in the future, based on statistical analyses of data collected about um, past offenders um, and their behavior um, in and out of the criminal, uh, criminal justice system. So um, that reform is very controversial, and I think there's an interesting tension that arises between the categorical reforms uh, that uh, Professor Zimmering suggests in Chapter 6 and the tensions uh, or the debates that have arisen around this separate um, sentencing reform that he does not explicitly discuss. Uh, and if I have enough time, hopefully, um, I will conclude by thinking a little bit about uh, what he identifies um, as potentially the reform goal, uh, which is to move away from mass incarceration and to be satisfied with mass incarceration light. Um, all right, so uh, Zimmering's uh, proposes um, a provocative decarceral agenda, uh, sentencing reform agenda, for the next 25 years. Uh, he suggests that uh, we should remove, um, or we have the option, I guess, of removing categories of offenders from prison eligibility um, or shifting responsibility for some of these um, categories of offenders or offenses from state to local um, uh, criminal uh, res um, administrators' responsibility. So uh, he suggests uh, that states could remove categories of offenders from prison eligibility and possibly from criminal responsibility altogether. In particular, he focuses on the promise of diverting uh, drug-addicted offenders. As he explains, uh, much of the increase in the prison population um, across the country can be attributed to the war on drugs in the 1980s, even though we see a massive increase in um, the length of sentences for all offenders. Um, it is, uh, there is sound, sound reason uh, to focus on drug offenders in particular. Um, because that penal policy um, increases or has affected, I think he said, uh, produces twice as many prison convicts um, and affects twice as many um, uh, families and individuals who are connected to those who um, cycle through for prison, um, for drug offenses in particular. So he suggests that there is momentum um, to shift the way that we respond to drug-addicted um, um, offenders um, by diverting them from prison to potentially uh, treatment programs writ large, um, or possibly, um, although he doesn't necessarily say it explicitly, uh, possibly um, removing responsibility, criminal responsibility for these individuals altogether. Um, so the momentum, he suggests, um, draws in large part from a social transformation in the character of the drug offender. So the current opioid crisis uh, uh, contains or uh, pertains to drug offenders that are not the, quote, usual suspects, as he suggests. Um, uh, the characteristics or the profile of these individuals um, are individuals who are older in age, come from middle America, um, and most likely uh, were addicted to painkillers and shifted from painkillers to opioids, um, to prohibited opioids. He suggests uh, that if there is a flaw um, in, well, he goes through, I, I also am not an empiricist. I was really happy to see Bob go first. So you're only going to get so much statistics out of me. Um, but uh, he suggests that if we look at the, um, the victims, right, the over, those that overdose on opioids, 
um, and comparison to the prison, the prison populations, uh, that we will see uh, that the individuals who are um, victims of opioid, of the opioid crisis, are not being captured in the criminal apparatus. Uh, and so he suggests that uh, this might this might be uh, a moment to catalyze for a broader reform on, on drug offenders in particular, where, where um, the failure, he suggests, um, of the opioid crisis for criminal um, administrators uh, is their inadequacy or their inability to admit their inadequacy to handle this public health crisis. So people are addicted. Criminal, um, criminal enforcement can't really handle that problem. That's part of, or that's a large um, part of what the opioid crisis brings to bear um, on criminal enforcement more broadly. And if that is the case, then potentially we can expand that insight out from just the opioid crisis to the original war on drugs um, and the focus on crack, um, crack offenders in particular, to say, if we're not good at dealing with opioid offenders um, or opioid users, uh, then maybe we're not good, uh, the criminal justice system is not good at um, dealing with drug addicted offenders uh, more broadly. And if we can um, use that, um, if we can use that insight to shape our reforms, we could carve out a large category, drug addicted offenders, um, or particularly individuals um, who have been convicted or um, of particular drug offenses as individuals who are no longer eligible for prison sentences and instead uh, would be diverted potentially to uh, drug treatment um, or someplace else. Um, so in this sense, his call for reform aligns with a broader trend in criminal justice um, reforms in the states more broadly. So. Um, there has been, since 1990, um, an increasing popularity in what are often referred to as drug treatment programs or drug courts uh, that divert low-level offenders who have been convicted of low-level offenses, usually drug offenses, uh, to treatment programs in lieu of longer terms of incarceration. Zimmering's uh, proposal goes uh, further, however, uh, because uh, he suggests that rather than allowing individual local um, prosecutors, judges, uh, to individually select which individuals would be um, diverted into these alternative treatment programs, thank you, uh, a lar the category writ large should be um, prohibited or limited um, from that discretion in your decision, instead automatically sort of pushed towards non-prison um, non sentences. His second proposal, uh, which we heard uh, John Thoff talking about uh, a bit earlier this morning, um, talks about realignment, realigning uh, criminal financial incentives to in reduce reliance on first prisons and hopefully, in the long run, also incarceration by diverting individuals to jails Jails are, uh, as he suggests, a solution to the correctional free lunch um, problem, uh, wherein states pay for prison, um, but the individuals who make the decisions about who gets prison sentences um, do not also incur those costs, right? So prisons are cheapest for local actors, uh, and jails are not. So the hope is, as John um, explained, the hope is that um, by realigning these financial incentives, uh, ultimately, uh, the local actors have incentive to reduce reliance on incarceration. This also is drawing on, in particular, California reforms. Uh, California in 2011 implemented uh, the Public Safety Realignment Act, uh, which uh, with this legislation shifted responsibility to punish and supervise the non-serious, non-violent, non-sex offenders with no serious history of, um, or no history of serious convictions from state to county level. Um, so each of the state's 58 counties in California decide how to deal with these individuals um, and 
what we see, what we see and what his uh, chapter lays out is that while there was a sort of predictable increase in reliance on jails, um, initially after public safety realignment was implemented in California, we then subsequently see a joint reduction, a reduction in the prison population um, in California, but also a significant reduction in the jail population that, that is now uh, sustaining at a much lower level. Um, than the, two, the peak 2007 um, rates of incarceration. So where is the tension? Um, so as I said, um, a very popular reform right now is the introduction of actuarial risk assessment tools to shape uh, judicial discretion um, and various other actors' discretion in the criminal, um, the criminal apparatus. And the idea is these tools will create categories of people. They create categories of low, medium, and high-risk individuals uh, based on this statistical analysis um, of past offenders' behavior. So somebody who shares the characteristics of individuals who recidivated in the, in the past, um, what might be high-risk, but somebody who does not share those characteristics are low-risk. This is a deeply controversial criminal justice reform. Many of you probably have seen something about it in the news. Um, ProPublica released a, uh, a report uh, in, I believe it was 2015, 2014, 2015, um, talking about uh, or asking the question whether these tools are biased. Are they racially biased? Um, and then you have um, back and forth between um, uh, empiricists um, and uh, criminal justice policymakers saying, is this a good policy decision um, to, to implement risk assessment tools, uh, which may potentially exacerbate racial disparities, uh, in part because the tools rely on past data, bad data, data that was collected um, in the era of mass incarceration. So if we know that criminal justice actors um, have disproportionately targeted the poor and um, racially marginalized communities, um, that's what the data is going to base their predictions on. So um, these are, as Zimmering might say, the usual suspects. That's what the risk assessment tools are designed, basically, to identify. Um, so uh, th this creates a tension, or I'd suggest two tensions. Um, his reforms call for categorical um, categorical um, reform, right? To say categories of, of offenders, um, categories of offenses should be treated differently and should be drug or should be diverted from prison um, from prison from prison sanctions. But um, the first tension is what does categorical mean? Because Zimmering refers to categorical to suggest. Um, Broad swaths of offenders, um, individuals who have been convicted of similar crimes, um, or uh, thank you, uh, individuals who have been convicted of similar crimes, uh, to be diverted, to be no longer automatically prison eligible. Um, and again, uh, he draws on public safety realignment, but he more expressly draws on Proposition 47. Proposition 47 passed in California in 2014, um, and it reclassified um, several low-level nonviolent um, offenses that used to be what Californians call wobblers, uh, meaning offenses that prosecutors could choose to treat as misdemeanors or felonies depending on their own discretion to carte blanche misdemeanors, uh, meaning that they were no longer prison eligible. And when combined with proposition uh, or with public safety realignment, it, create, it created a broad population of individuals who are no longer prison eligible. Um, all right, so this idea of categorical is different from the categories that are created by actuarial risk assessment tools. Actuarial risk assessment tools rely on basically administratively created categories. So somebody that is um, high risk. Um, and the idea is that uh, the tools will identify individual defendants um, who, based on their similarities to others, are not likely to engage in future criminal behavior. Um, so on the one hand, using an actuarial risk assessment tool could potentially be far more progressive um, in a, a not or a decarceration um, proposal because it cuts across different categories of offenders. 
risk assessment tools have actually been quite popular in particular um, in reducing reliance on incarceration for individuals like sex offenders um, who are the least sympathetic amongst um, the criminal population. Zimring, on the other hand, does not really focus on the least sympathetic. Instead, he says, let's double down on those least sympathetic, or the most sympathetic, excuse me, individuals in the prison um, population, drug offenders, um, and expand out to say more drug offenders cannot be prison, um, uh, directed towards prison. So while it seems that these are two different categories, but just two different categories, either is a, um, is a possible way to proceed. Um, I want to suggest that Zimmerman's use of categorical um, is actually um, undermined by the use of actuarial risk assessments. Because, as he suggests in his chapter, one of the problems that um, the categorical imperative, uh, as he suggests, um, is trying to get, uh, is trying to avoid is the issue of cherry picking. The idea that we can pick one or two individuals who really shouldn't be in a system that is otherwise operating quite functionally. Um, and as he suggests in his, thank you, as he suggests in his, um, in, uh, in his art, in his book, uh, the, the benefit of a categorical approach in large part has to do with the clear message that it might send, which is that business as usual, right, doesn't work that something is wrong with the carceral, uh, the criminal apparatus, and that sentencing can send that message um, through the reform. Actuarial risk assessment tools, on the other hand, um, don't send that message, right? They say business as usual would be fine if we could just do what we do a little bit better, more accurately, more consistently. The other tension I want to identify, um, it has to do with responding to changing social practices. So actuarial risk assessment tools at their core um, are a type of profiling. The idea is that we can profile individuals who are entering the prison systems and identify those few who should not be there. In his book, in, in Bernard Harcourt's 2007 book, Against Prediction, he questions the efficacy of profiling um, writ large in the criminal justice system. And the problem is that there are some people who are visible, thank you, uh, there are some people who are visible um, in the data uh, that is used in the criminal apparatus, um, or that's collected in the criminal apparatus, and others that might not be. And so the concern is uh, that individuals who are visible are going to be um, disproportionately targeted um, when we increase our reliance on predictive tools, um, while individuals who are not often swept up in the carceral state um, might not be, in which point they have a higher or an easier uh, opportunity to engage in crime. Well, this is exactly what Zimmering identifies when he talks about the concern of the opioid crisis. So he suggests um, that part of the problem with the opioid crisis, uh, part of the problem with the opioid crisis is that the individuals who are swept up in the opioid crisis aren't the usual suspects. But this is exactly what Bernard Harcourt was talking about when he suggested the problem of a ratchet effect. That there's the opportunity for crime to flourish in areas that we are not looking um, because that area, um, uh, because that area is not where we traditionally would look. Um, and instead of using that as a basis to increase incarceration, right, to say let's move the criminal apparatus to capture more individuals by um, bringing it to bear on the opioid crisis, let's use this as a message or as a moment to reflect on whether the criminal apparatus is the best way to respond to what is a social crisis. Um, so I already went over my time, but I'm going to take this one last minute um, just to raise. So what we see um, is this tension, this idea that actuarial risk assessment tools might be a good intervention. What Zimmering's um, categorical imperative suggests is that it, it is one way to proceed on criminal justice reform and sentencing reform in particular, but it is by no means a necessary um, precursor to any kind of further decarceration. I want to suggest that it can also be in tension with uh, um, reducing incarceration levels further and instead um, encouraging sort of the status quo. Um, and that, um, I know I really don't have time, so I just want to <laughs> I just want to say um, 
that that would be problematic um, if our larger agenda is, in fact, decarceration. And I hope in question and answer um, to talk a little bit about what are the contours of a decarceration aim um, in line with um, uh, Professor Zimmering's um, discussion in the book. Thank you. Okay, my, my talk will overlap a little bit with uh, Jessica's uh, toward the end. Uh, but uh, the main message I want to make is that uh, any serious attempt to think about um, mass imprisonment as a, as a national uh, phenomenon that we need to encounter probably in different ways in, in different states uh, needs to pay serious attention uh, to what I call prison release uh, discretion, uh, which is once you've been sentenced by a judge and put in prison, uh, who actually decides when you get out? Who actually decides how long the sentence uh, is going to be, what the time served on that particular sentence uh, is going to be? Uh, and in two-thirds of the states uh, today, a big chunk of uh, the American states, uh, the big player in determining time served uh, is uh, the parole board in those states, uh, together with departments of corrections that uh, administer good time and earned time credits. Uh, sometimes those credits are a big deal, too, depending on the state. Uh, but, the, but the primary subject of this talk, or the primary protagonist in the story, is going to be the uh, American Parole Board, at least in two-thirds of the uh, American uh, states. And I, I, I guess what the one message I'd like to get through is that uh, uh, a decarceration agenda, not a, to, to be complete, to be comprehensive, to really not be overlooking any important piece, needs to include uh, a lot of uh, attention and creativity on problems of prison uh, release discretion. Uh, one of the things I very much like about Frank's uh, manuscript uh, is that he does pay attention uh, to this issue. Uh, on the other hand, if you read uh, most of the literature on mass incarceration, most of the discussions in the media, and even at the level of the National Academy of Sciences, uh, you see very little attention given to prison release discretion uh, as an element contributing to mass incarceration and possibly as uh, a big part of the um, solution. Uh, now, if I can find my slides. I don't know if I can. And slideshow. Oh, here we go. This looks good. Why can't I just start the slideshow? Yeah. So I'll do this one, and then I'm going to click with this. Mm hmm. Okay. Oh, Oop, that's not mine. Start it over. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry about that. I, I don't have that many pictures, but I think, <laughs> the, I think they're attention grabbing. So. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I've hardly ever been to a conference where there wasn't some PowerPoint glitch. <laughs> You'd think in a, this era of technology, someone would have figured out just how to make PowerPoint work. But that's not me either. <laughs> we're, that... we're reviewing the whole day. <laughs> uh, okay. Everyone needs a summary. Yeah. <laughs> right. For yeah. our tech learners in the room. So those who came in late. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. But some of these folks yep. had a lot of slides. Okay, so that's <laughs> so that, so that's me. Yes. Okay, and you see prison release reform. Uh, to me, is at least one very one critical element of any uh, serious approach, audacious kind of ambitious approach to mass incarceration uh, in the U.S. And I want to give you an example just drawn from a couple states of how prison release discretion works, at least 
principally at the, the level of uh, the parole board. Okay, so, so a fairly uh, traditional state uh, that uh, you know, uh, might accord with a lot of people's preconceptions is Georgia. Uh, and what this diagram is, is a timeline from the, the day of admission all the way on the left to all the way on the right, uh, the maximum term that a given prisoner could serve based on the sentence that they received in court. Okay, and most prisoners are going to serve, the time served is going to be somewhere uh, in between admission and the maximum, maybe not go going all the way to the maximum. Now, what this diagram is showing by the part of the timeline in black is that in Georgia, 33% uh, of the maximum sentence must be served according to the judicial sentence in most cases uh, before anyone has the opportunity to release that person. Okay, but at the 33% mark, uh, parole release discretion uh, comes into play. So the parole board uh, for the majority of prisoners in Georgia could release you at your 33% mark, at your 50% mark, at your 70% mark, at your 100% uh, mark. And I, I think it's useful to quantify uh, how this system works in individual cases and then scale it up and think about how it works across the whole uh, system of uh, prison policy in Georgia. Uh, that the parole board in this diagram, I would say, has the discretion, the release discretion, uh, to subtract as much as two-thirds or 67% uh, of the time served that would be there if you've served the full maximum. So that's one way of looking at it, and that suggests, oh, parole boards have a lot of power in the direction of leniency. Okay? But anytime we see this degree of discretion, we need to mentally flip it. Uh, because a situation like this, or a, 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 a setup like this, could be described as a parole board that has the power in any individual case to triple the minimum term of the sentence by extending it all the way to the maximum. So every time we, we look at a parole board with, with, with a lot of what appears to be power in the direction of early release, leniency, I think we also have to think about release denial discretion, uh, which is increasingly what we see in parole boards. Rachel mentioned this uh, this morning. Uh, but I think of parole boards often as, as release denial agencies rather than a, a, a granting parole across the country in two-thirds of the state. Uh, okay, so this is uh, Georgia. And if we scale it up and think about the whole system, uh, let's, and this is most prisoners in Georgia. It's not all, but let's just think about the part that's under the jurisdiction of the parole board. Uh, if the parole board were to release most or all people uh, at their first release eligibility, uh, you would get one level of prison population resulting from that if that were the practice over time. Uh, on the other hand, if the parole board was more likely to hold people close to their maximum term, you would get a different prison population in the state of Georgia, at least for those prisoners uh, within, the, within the jurisdiction of the parole releasing agency. So the parole board's power over that prison population has a ratio of three to one, right? The parole board, if it lets people out early, maybe you have a prison population of 100 per 100,000, whereas if it's holding people more towards the maximum, it can go up to 300 per 100,000. That, that's the swing of possibility in a relatively ordinary uh, paroling state, okay? So this is exhibit A for my case that, uh, We've really got to pay a lot of attention to how that two-thirds of the line is working uh, in states that still have uh, a parole board making decisions of that importance. Uh, now, I just want to jump ahead. Yes, this is Iowa. Uh, the, the timeline of a prison sentence in Iowa has no black component. It's all gray uh, because in Iowa and five other states, uh, the parole board has the power to release prisoners on the day they're admitted. There is no minimum uh, a prison term in Iowa and five other states. 
or the parole board has the power to hold people uh, uh, for their full maximum term. Okay, so within the limit of what holding everyone for their maximum term would uh, create in the state of Iowa, uh, the parole board has 100% of the authority over time served and has the power, if you scale it up as a system as a whole, just has a breathtaking power to affect uh, prison population size uh, in their state. Okay, now one thing I want to emphasize about these charts is that they are depicting uh, the law, the legal structure that exists in these uh, states. Uh, the Robina Institute took four years and devoted a lot of uh, resources uh, into looking at all 34 paroling states in the country. Uh, we have a separate report for each state uh, on the law governing parole release, parole revocations, parole supervision. Uh, and we found a huge diversity of approach, just as you see in these first uh, two slides. Uh, but this is how it is on paper, right? We, you know, there's a lot that we don't know about how much of this discretion is the parole board actually using. Uh, maybe everyone in Iowa gets out of the 33% mark, even though potentially the parole board could be handling it very differently. Maybe everyone in Georgia is getting out of the 33% mark as well. Uh, but one thing I would point out about both of these systems and just about every paroling system uh, in the United States, uh, however that system is working at a particular moment in time, uh, it can change with very little friction. It's a highly lubricated system in the sense that a parole board in Iowa that is letting most people out at the 20% mark could decide next week to start holding everyone for 80 90% of their sentence. That would not require any legislative change. It would require no change in regulations. It would require no change in judicial behavior. It would require no change in prosecutors. It's just this little parole board. And we have seen this happen in a number of states in the country, especially in after 1990s and since then, when a single horrific crime is committed in the state by someone who's been released from prison. And suddenly, release rates go from whatever the number was to zero overnight. Okay, so, and that can happen with no friction. There's no lawmaker, there's no change in the formal law. There's simply a change in the type of pressure that the parole board is feeling and what it decides to do. Uh, now, just as importantly as those sort of immediate changes where release practices turn on a dime, uh, the actual release practice of a parole board in a system like this or in a system like this can change dramatically but slowly over time. Uh, so you could have a parole board in the 1970s administering a law like this uh, in a way that produces what we might think is a reasonable prison population. Uh, and yet by the 1990s, it has changed its behavior with no change in law or the behavior of anyone else in the system so that uh, the prison population under their jurisdiction has, uh, has tripled. So that's what I mean by a very uh, frictionless uh, and, to my mind, a dangerous system to set up uh, in terms of determining time served. Uh, now, if I were acting as a consultant to the state of Iowa, and they want to know a few things. What should we do about our prison population uh, today? Uh, what should we do about the future? Let's say there's another political crisis. There's pressure in the future to not to release people and therefore increase the prison population. Uh, what should we do about our problem today and a problem in the future if we have that political pressure? Again, and I would tell them, you have got to think of some way to bring this under control. Because this kind of a system, your prison policy just swings in the breeze, right? And the parole board has, like I say, just breathtaking power over time served, okay? And it's not just Iowa and the five other states I mentioned that have this kind 
we worked in Colorado for a couple years, and we found for minor sex offenses, the typical sentence hand handed out in Colorado was one year to life, or two years to life. And we saw, we saw a number of hearings involving sentences like this. The parole board, in making its decisions within that framework, again, is in control of the prison population for that segment of the Colorado prisons. So if I were a consultant, I would tell state, you've got to figure out a way to bring this under control, uh, partly because if you do, uh, if you make the prison release system work the way you want, it could bring about dramatic decreases in current prison populations. We thought we saw that in Colorado, uh, that if you simply uh, released the lowest risk category of people who came to the parole board, you know, you can count. And their prison population would have fallen quite uh, dramatically. So getting some degree of control over this is important as part of the cure of mass incarceration. And also, uh, I would suggest, as an equally important uh, uh, benefit, which is better control of systems like this, would better insulate them from runaway prison growth in the future if we enter another era of tough on crime or moral panic about one crime uh, or another. Uh, now, I have other sl slides I can show you, but um, uh, I don't think I will. Uh, instead, I'll just mention, and this, this is where I dovetail with Jessica's uh, um, uh, discussion. Uh, I think we do have some tools, or at least some ideas available to us, that could take more control of the paroling process in states that still have systems uh, like this. Uh, and one idea that seems especially promising uh, to me uh, is to rely to a much greater extent on risk assessment instruments and their ability to identify prisoners who are at an extremely low risk of future violent offending, especially serious violent offending. Uh, the Pennsylvania Sentencing Commission has recently done a study on prisoners and the people who are coming through the system. And one thing they found, this to me is an impressive number, uh, that if you use this, if, if you have a risk assessment instrument, it's the best one you can come up with. Uh, if you try to use it to tell you who the most dangerous people are, way up at the you know, top end of the recidivist, the violent recidivism curve, it's not very accurate. Right? In Pennsylvania, I think in that category, uh, the, the commission thought they were getting 11 out of 100. Uh, correct in terms of trying to find uh, the most, most violent. But in that larger category where the instrument uh, was telling them who is at trivial risk of a serious violent crime in the future, or indeed of any violent crime in the future, their projections uh, were at 98% accuracy. Okay, so, so risk assessment tools are rightly controversial. They're, they're, they're scary in a lot of their applications, uh, but I believe they can be used to one good effect immediately and in the future, and that would be to help us identify a meaningful category of people who have no business being in prison. Right? If they're there, they ought to be released, perhaps automatically, uh, maybe we should be identifying a lot of these people before they're even admitted uh, to prison. Right? So we have this you know, actuarial power that really can be used in the direction of lenity. And to me, this helps with both of the problems I've identified. Uh, it, will, it, will, it will take a chunk out of uh, the current mass incarceration uh, uh, a problem in a large number of American states. And once you have this substantive policy in force that very low risk of violent offending people are not supposed to be in prison, once that substantive policy is in place and it's evidence-based and it has a track record, that is going to help those states uh, resist future unwanted, unplanned explosions in their prison populations uh, as well. Uh, so, and it, the, you know, the subject of importance that I think nationally we have to pay more attention to 
is prison release discretion? Who gets to decide how much time is actually served on a prison on a, on a prison sentence? That power ultimately contributes a lot to prison population size at any given moment. Uh, and the suggestion of the kind that I'm making, and many others maybe we could think up, uh, would also help insulate some of these systems uh, so they're less, less vulnerable, just less, um, uh, uh, less free-floating, and less vulnerable to being pushed uh, to the red line side of the needle uh, when there's a crisis or when there's political pressure to do so. So I'll stop there, and I think, think I'm on time. All right. Thanks to both of you. Um, we have a, a couple of questions, but before we get there, um, Professor Eaglin, I think there was maybe a word or two more about decarceration that, that you wanted to say. So I'd like to give you a, like a minute to, to go ahead and, and tell us what you're thinking there. Um, yeah. So, you know, I think that what, what excites me about Zimmerman's proposal, oh, uh, what excites me about Zimmerman's proposal uh, is that it, um, it begs this bigger question of what we want the criminal justice system to do. That the criminal that the criminal apparatus isn't supposed to be the only. I think it was uh, Rachel said it in, in the morning. Like this is a huge government resource, right? And it's not the only one. It's not the only way that we respond to different crises. Um, and when you start to um, when you start to say there are categories of offensives, categories of offenders um, that aren't supposed to be here, that this isn't the way we should be dealing with it, that doesn't mean we're washing our hands of the underlying problem, particularly in the context of drug offenders. Um, but it is raising a bigger question of what it is we want the criminal justice system to do that goes beyond just being efficient and saving money, um, but also to this deeper question of how we, what do we think good governance is um, for a healthy democracy. Um, and so I think that part of the benefit of that categorical imperative is that it drives at those deeper structural questions that can often be written out of um, particularly sentencing reforms um, in the hopes of sort of avoiding the hearts and minds um, uh, critiques. All right, great. So one of the first questions we have, you both mentioned risk assessment, but I think this might be directed more at you, Professor Eaglin. Um, what role, if any, can risk assessment play in restorative justice programs? So thank you. Um, it's an interesting reality that actuarial risk assessment tools are used all over the criminal justice system right now in ways that we don't necessarily realize. Um, including um, restorative justice programs. I mean, so the way that people often are diverted from their prison-directed sentences is a prosecutor who will say, I don't want to send this, or I'm willing to send this person someplace else. Um, and actuarial risk assessment tools um, provide some sort of basis to say this person is a good candidate for diversion. Um, but, in, so that sounds great, um, but in doing that, we often will leave individuals who um, might also be able to succeed in rehabilitative programs, and in fact, um, um, might be people who would benefit the most from restorative justice or re rehabil rehabilitation um, because, of, because of the tool identified them as someone that looks like other people in the criminal justice system. So it kind of, it can cut both ways, um, and I think that um, you know, honestly, I, I am very much in agreement with Kevin. I think that if we're going to use risk assessment tools, the place to do it probably is in the parole context. Um, that that this person's already serving a sentence, and it can be used in a way that's effective towards reducing that that level of incarceration. But even when you start talking about some of these diversionary options, um, you're carving out large swaths of people who won't qualify because they look like people who are already in the criminal justice system, and that's disproportionately going to um, disadvantage the poor uh, and um, people of color who um, might also benefit from the privilege of restorative justice initiatives. Do you have anything to add or no? No. Okay, so um, Professor writes over to you uh, on your parole issue. Um, one of the questions from the audience was basically, you know, how often do parole boards like Iowa and Georgia actually grant parole as early in the sentence as they can? 
Um, and does there seem to be a pattern uh, in that? So what have you come up with so far? Okay, well, what we found on the, that, uh, that type of question is a near total absence of data. Uh, uh, it's, 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 it's hard to figure out at any given slice of time how the parole board is using its discretion, which you would want to know. But what you'd really want to know is what were they doing two years ago, five years ago, ten years ago? What might they be doing two years from now, five years from now, ten years from now? So we really need longitudinal data. Um, th there is a potential source uh, for that kind of work that the, it's called the National Corrections Reporting Program. It's just a huge body of very messy data that the US Justice Department has been compiling since the 1980s. Uh, one of our, the strategies of the Robina Institute is to try to get funding to get into that and open it up and actually watch states over time in terms of how they're treating individuals, uh, where there's a lot of release discretion, are they getting out early or late, what's happening with good time credits, are people getting denied 16 times in a row, can we figure out why. Uh, I think that we urgently need to know the answer to questions like this. But at the moment, even if you go to the states themselves, they don't know and have no way to tell you. Okay. So part of my pitch is just to convince people that this is important enough to look into and to try to figure out, both because we want to understand how we got to mass incarceration and the important drivers of that, and we want to understand the potential, particularly of paroling systems, uh, to help us reduce, to get out from under uh, the problem. Okay, so I think we may have, we have the uh, challenge question. Um, <laughs> mm -hmm. All right, the question is, what about the wealthy who pay for their kids to get into good colleges? Aren't they low-level offenders? Isn't jail time their strongest deterrent? Uh, I can't, um, is time meaningless to this population? Anyone want to tackle that one? Okay, well, I think someone said, you know, I spent years working on the model penal code, uh, uh, sentencing provisions. And what the model penal code says is, no, don't send them to prison. But also, you know, the property offenders, the drug-only offenders who are currently going to prison, they have no business going to prison either. That prison, prison is for two things. It's for the people that we have some reason to think are dangerous of violent recidivism. And in some cases, it's just pure retribution. If the crime is so serious that only a prison sentence will do, uh, then, uh, uh, then send, send someone to prison. Uh, if you look at the research, it's hard to believe in deterrence. Right? It's, you know, the model penal code said, would say, no, don't send them to prison. But then there are a lot of, you know, categorically, as, as Frank says in his categorical arguments, there are lots and lots of people who are currently prison bound today who should also just not be on the table for a prison sentence. Yeah, I would just echo that and say, I think um, part of the challenge when faced with those kinds of examples is this sort of impulse to level up, right? To say that the problem is that these people who are more privileged um, should be getting the same kinds of punishment as individuals who are less privileged and find themselves in the criminal justice system more frequently. And it's really important to fight against that and say, you know, should that person, you know, should, should a wealthy individual who, uh, you know, pay to get their child into college, go to prison for more than, or be incarcerated for more than two days? Or can we say, well, if that's the kind of person that doesn't get incarcerated for more than two days, who else should not be incarcerated for more than two days? Um, and I think that that's a, a shift in the frame of, you know, what it is that we're really, what we're really aiming towards. And, and I, I think in, um, Professor Zimmering's book, there's this point when he talks about that in the context of the opioid crisis, right? The solution could be to ratchet up the punishment of individuals who engage in criminal behavior to obtain opioids, um, or, the, or the solution could be to use the fact that we are responding to the opioid crisis as a public um, health crisis as an opportunity to reflect on what other types of 
public health crises we've responded to with the carceral, with our carceral arm, and potentially say that that's not appropriate. I think I just realized, I'm not sure what time we end on. One thirty. Okay. All right. So um, I, I think that uh, I'm out of questions up here, and it's, it looks like we have time for probably two questions from the audience. So is there anyone out there who has a question that they would like to ask? Right over here. So there are sort of short-term solutions and then there are longer-term solutions. So one of the concerns with actuarial risk assessment tools, and not the kind that Kevin's talking about, um, but the kind that are often used at sentencing, predict likelihood of re-arrest um, in like three years or something like that. But we know that arrest data is perhaps the most sort of shaky data that we could use and that there's a lot of, there's a lot of evidence that there's problematic um, drug enforcement as a good example, um, that is reflected in arrest data. So one solution is to move to convictions, but of course, convictions for what? How do we define what violence is? Um, how do the tools define what violence is? Like those, those are very granular questions, but the way that we resolve those kinds of questions, what it is exactly we're predicting, um, is going to have a big impact on exactly how racially um, uh, disparate the effect of the tools might be. Um, and so that's one place to start, but the truth is that, and, and it's an it's a ugly truth, is that you know, you, when you start talking about um, race in the criminal, criminal justice system, race and crime, um, that you are also talking about um, a higher victimization. I think it was well stated in the lunch, in the lunch panel where, um, what is the woman's name, Tanya was saying, you know, that victims of crime are often um, minorities, people of color, just as much as, uh, as the perpetrators of crime might be. And there are reasons for that, structural reasons for that. Um, but the improvement, the sort of tinkering with the tools are only going to do so much to avoid sort of the bigger questions about where we want to put our criminal justice resources um, in a way that is not going to increase or stabilize um, problematic racial disparities. Can I just add to that? Okay. I mean, you know, I mean, the other uh, is, uh, uh, sort of element of importance here is, as Al Bloomstein said today, if, I mean, if, if, if we can think of anything that substantially drives incarceration rates down, uh, because the current status quo is so racially skewed, uh, 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 minority groups, people of color in the system stand to reap benefits disproportionate to those benefits that white people in the city. For, for example, you know, the average black neighborhood will see more people returning uh, from prison than the average white, even poor white neighborhood because, because the, you know, the, the, the incarceration system is skewed. Anything that brings it down by 20% or 25% in terms of the black community is there's going to be a strong tendency to disproportionately benefit the people who have disproportionately suffered. All right, and so with that, oh, I think we'll do the one last question yeah. there. Excuse me, what role, if any, should the risk assessment play in the restorative justice program? Or should it at all, because you're talking about perhaps a community program which doesn't put people in prison, but the agreement the state would have would be to resolve some issues, and that would seem to be Yeah, I mean, I don't necessarily think that, that that you need a risk assessment tool to put people into a restorative justice program. But I think that that's one way. I mean, I understand to me, there's just multiple ways to get someone into a restorative justice program. I mean, I think earlier we were talking um, about how um, some states or some jurisdictions started out with low-level nonviolent offenders, and now most of the restorative justice program is directed towards violent um, or serious offenders. And so 
if you say the only, that the only way we're going to let you in is through an actuarial risk assessment tool, you sort of preclude the, the possibility that there are individuals who might be sort of quote unquote high risk individuals that might be the most receptive to it. Um, and so what Zimmering's um, proposal suggests is that categorical, uh, a categorical approach might be another way to um, sort of fuse into even restorative justice um, initiatives. All right, so I think with that, we've reached the end of our time. Please join me in thanking Professor Eaglin and Professor Wright. This has been Experto Crede, the Minnesota Law Review podcast. You can find us on the web at minnesotalawreview.org. Follow us on Twitter at Minnesota Law Rev. To subscribe to our podcast, please visit soundcloud.com slash Minnesota Law or find us at your preferred podcast provider. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, the University of Minnesota, the University of Minnesota Law School, or Minnesota Law Review. None of the content should be considered legal advice.